How's everybody? Presence of the Lord is good, huh? <laughs> so, uh, how open-minded is everybody feeling today? Yeah, we're going to find out. Um, here's what I want you to do. I, w- I want you to stand up. Find, find your seat. Everybody, find your seat first. So I'll wait for the praise team. <clears throat> okay, now, what I want you to do is look around the room at a different seat that is a good distance from you. It would be one of the few places, maybe not the last place, but some place you would definitely say, I wouldn't sit. Don't talk to your spouse. Just look. And when you have it, I want you to move over to that seat. I asked you how open-minded you were. And I don't want spouses sitting together. I don't want you sitting with someone you normally sit with. Justin just said, what if somebody sits in my seat? And I would suggest if you normally sit on this side, go sit on that side. But mix yourself up. I I want you in a significantly different spot. And try to stay in love and peace and joy while you're doing it. There's all these people over here. No one ever sits over here. It's too far from the door. (laughs) It's too far to walk. All right, now I want you to look around. I want you to notice what's different. I want you to notice how it feels. While I find my notes. (laughs) So this is all just an exercise to kill time. (laughs) All right, so... How many of you, until now, pretty much sit in the same seat or the same general vicinity where you always sit? Let me see your hand. I know I do. Okay. So what I want you to see with that is how easily you get stuck in a limiting pattern. How easily. And it's funny because I was going to do this at... uh, I had this idea when I was on my sabbatical and things were going on, and I was going to try it in Arkansas because I thought, well, I'll try it on their people first. <laughs> because I know church folk, and it's just people, it's not church, it's anywhere, how easily we get stuck in our patterns and become emotionally committed to them and how upset or how people will even refuse. I'm not about to move my chair. Or how uncomfortable a person may be if they're not sitting with the person who makes them feel secure, i.e. their spouse or whatever the case may be, right? And so if, here's what I want you to think about, if we get so stuck in a pattern so easily as coming to church and sitting in the same place because we're comfortable, then here's my question. Where else are you stuck in a pattern that you just do because you've always done it? Because if you get stuck that easily in that, I guarantee you, you get stuck in patterns everywhere else. Now, here's the problem with patterns, is patterns limit us. They limit our choices. So how many of you would have even thought, even consciously thought, 
I'm going to sit somewhere different today by someone I don't know and see if I can change my experience. So it's not bad to always sit in the same place, but it definitely limits you. It limits your experience. It limits your choices. It limits your perceptions. How many of you know things look different from where you're sitting? The stage looks different. I look a little bit different, hopefully. I don't know. I'm pretty symmetrical. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, it's a personal inside joke for myself. Never mind. Um, but we, we limit our experiences, right? And here's the thing. They're always, everybody say always. always. They are always self-imposed and self-maintained. So that in simple ways to complex ways, we have created a self that moves through the world through certain patterns. And so we limit our choices, we limit our experiences, we limit our perceptions. And it's because we chose to do it, and we also choose to maintain it. Make sense? Now, quantum physics tells us that basically when you change how you look at something, what you look at changes. That's just a basic tenet of quantum physics. I've taught that before, so I don't want to go into it. But if you look at something at a microcosmic level expecting to see a particle, you see a particle. If you expect to see a wave, you see a wave. It depends on what you expect to see, basically. Right? So how many of you know, have seen this before? This comes from Gestalt psychology, uh, basically the psychology of our perceptions. And so most of you, how many of you have seen this? How many of you have not seen this? Anybody that's not seen this? Okay, for those of you that haven't seen it, when you look at that, do you see the old lady or do you see the young woman? Because they're both there. Or can you switch back and forth? Those of you that hadn't seen it, how many of you knew there was two there? Or did you have to shift your perceptions? But when you shift your perception, the picture changes, right? So how you experience it is totally based on how you perceive it. Right? So what about God? <laughs> I'm going to back up. What about God? Here, here's the thing about language. We do this for everything. But let's, let's use an example for a person. Think of somebody that you used to really like, and then something happened and you didn't like them anymore. Hope, you, you probably shouldn't have to think too hard. Right? So what happened? Did that person become a totally different entity? No. What happened was your pattern of thinking about them is what changed. Your perception of that person changed. So when you like somebody, you, you hear their name, and you have a pattern that's built into your uh, mind of what that person looks like, what that person acts like, what their personality is like, who they are and what they're like. And because we like things simple and we like things quick, and we're judgmental, we usually attach a judgment to that person, and it's usually a very small thumbnail sketch of who that person is. We don't see the, all the depths and all the dimensions of them. We just kind of see based on whatever our experience is. And when we hear their name, we activate it. So Julie talked about a, a scientist that we went and heard of several months ago. His name's Greg Braden. And one of the things that he observed, and I thought it was a very astute observation, was he said everything that we build technologically is a mirror of something that we can do internally. So for example, uh, a crane that's able to dig or whatever, or, or lift something, uh, let's say the, what, what do you call it, like a forklift, is simply an extension of what we can do. We can just do it quicker and faster with the forklift, right? It, which is lift something. And so basically our computers are the same way. So on, 
on my computer, <laughs> I don't know how everybody else's works, because uh, I have an Apple and I totally don't understand PCs these days because I've been doing Apple for far too long, but we have apps and there are pictures of those apps or on your phone or whatever, and you push the button for the app and the program comes up. The app is merely a representation that, that, that activates the program, correct? And so the truth is, is that all language works in our mind that way. When we hear a term, when we hear a name, when we hear a phrase, it's like clicking on an app internally and we pull up the same program. So if I want to use pages, pages is the word processor that uh, Apple uses. I don't click on the Kino app, which is what sort of the their version of PowerPoint or whatever of, of a presentation, right? So when I click on pages, I get pages. When I click on keynote, I get keynote every single time. Now, here's our situation as human beings. When we click on certain terms, we pull up the same patterns. Listen, if, if you and I get so stuck in a pattern that we sit in the same seat every Sunday and we get all discombobulated if we're told we have to move around, then how much more do we have a set programming when we hear the term God, that when we hear God, we activate the same thing. Yeah? So one of the things that I discovered for me, and I'm just sharing from my own life something that really, really, really helped me. One of the things for me that I realized that I was doing was that I was basically keeping the same set of programs when it came to the word God. When I heard the word God, not just what I had learned or what I had studied, all of that stuff does not get internalized. Just because you hear a message, it doesn't get internalized or integrated into your program. It's just information. Right. And really, a lot of times what shapes us is our early experiences, whatever our early experiences were. Uh, it used to bug me when I would hear certain preachers and I was like, don't you have a contemporary story? Like because they're talk, telling testimonies from the same testimony from 15 years ago or the same in some cases, the same testimony from 30 years ago. And I'm like, don't you have a different story? Don't you have a current uh, uh, experience that you've had with God? But see, the issue is, is not that they weren't having current experiences. The issue is, is that those early experiences hardwired, literally hardwired into their brain, their perception of who they thought God was. And they locked into that. And so here's the reality. When. 99% of us relate to somebody. We don't relate to the person. We relate to our idea of who they are. And certainly when it comes to God, most of the time we are not relating to God. We are relating to the perception, the, the belief patterns of what we believe about who God is. So we're relating to our beliefs more than we're relating to the person. So... And here's the thing, with God, we're certain we're right about God. We're certain we're correct about God. And that's what keeps us so locked into the pattern, which is what keeps us so limited, which is what limits our experiences and prevents us from being able to change or experience more of God. That We all say we want more, but we want Him to fit into the patterns that we've locked into our brain. And when He doesn't fit into those patterns, we automatically reject it as false because we're so sure that our programming about God is what's right. And we're so emotionally invested in it, particularly if our eternity depends on it. So actually, the word God is not in the original Bible. And there was silence in Pueblo for the space of 30 minutes. 
Because Jesus, Paul, John, Matthew, Jeremiah, Moses, none of them spoke English. And God is an English word. And guess where it originates from? God is an English word that comes from a Germanic word that means death. That means the grave. And there's debate among scholars, but they think it probably comes from the word sacrifice. So they would think about offering sacrifices, so they would think about death, they would think about the grave, and that was the original meaning of the word God. So, at least in its origins, when you and I say the word God, we're talking about something dead. Now, the reason I'm, the reason I'm doing this is because when I say God to anybody, but when I say God to you guys, you pull up the same pattern every Sunday. Just hearing the word. Are you breathing? And, and not this group, but some believers can get so upset when you just change a word, they think you're, you're, you're a heretic or something because you changed a word. But Jesus did not use the King James Version of the Bible. There was a congressman, literally, that said, if the King James was good enough for Paul, it's good enough for me. He's from a southern state. But anyway, we'll leave that alone. Understand this, if, if you're not in shock yet, the English term for God would have been completely foreign to Jesus. So for the rest of my message, I'm going to substitute, hopefully, because I'm going to try and break my pattern. Every time I think about God, I'm going to substitute the word, the divine. Everybody say, the divine. Now, the word divine from the Latin is a word that originally meant to shine, to make out by supernatural insight or someone who is otherworldly. Now, I don't know about you, but if we want to get nitpicky about the origin of words, that seems to reflect more accurately my patterns and beliefs about the divine than the word God. But I wonder if I'd have started this morning and said, the divine, we thank you for your presence here. See, I broke a pattern, but how many of you would have sent shockwaves into your system? And then there would have been all kinds of talk about what happened to him when he was on his sabbatical. Am I right? Do you see how limited we get by our thinking? Am I making the point? All right, I got to hurry here. All right, so there is a, there is a, a term in Christian spirituality. Everybody say Christian. Christian spirituality, Christian mysticism called via negativa. It was so funny when I showed this to someone, they, they immediately had a re reaction to the word negative because we have a judgment on the word negative and it's a negative judgment, isn't it? But via negativa simply means the way of negation. Everybody say with me, the way of negation. So what Christian mystics taught for centuries was if you and I were going to get to know God on an experiential level, the way that we did that was we began by negating everything we previously believed about God. Because the point is, whatever you can think about God, whatever word you can use to describe God, the moment you use a word to describe God, you make the, the moment you use a word to describe the divine, <laughs> you make the divine less than what the divine is. So if I say the term omnipotence, the divine is omnipotent, what does that mean? The word omnipotent means all-powerful. But how many of you know 
The divine is not just all-powerful. So when I talk about the divine is omnipotent, I actually reduce the divine to less than what the divine is. Because he's also omnipresent. He's also omniscient. He's also all-loving. So any concept, so what they recognized was the limitation of concept. And to be able to really experience God, you had to be able to transcend all your concepts, patterns, and limitations of how you believed about who God was. And so the mystical pathway was a way of negation. It was a way of saying God is not that. Actually, what they would say is God is no thing. Not nothing, but no thing. The psalmist said it this way, nothing on earth can compare to you. But we use all kinds of earthly things to compare to God and think that's what He is. For example, one of our favorite ones. Well, let me give you a quote here. Stay with my notes. The worship of religion has become a great stumbling block in the way of the worship of God. The worship of religion, because religion is our corporate, watch this, Religion is our collective thought pattern that an entire group of people has become locked into. And therefore, social admittance or acceptance among that group requires that one buys into the collective thought pattern. Do I need to say that again? Okay. Religion is a collective thought pattern. We all believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So that is one of our collective thought patterns. So to be a Christian, to be one of us, you have to believe Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So to be in a religion, to have admittance and acceptance in a religion, you have to buy into a thought pattern. And then we layer it. I, I got, uh, I, I don't fit in certain Christian religious places. They won't have me in to speak. Some of them think I'm totally deceived. Some of them, your pastors, warned you about coming to my church because then you too would be deceived. Because I don't believe in the rapture. Because that's a collective thought pattern that you have to buy into to have admittance. And when you don't buy into it, guess what? (laughs) When you don't buy into it, those who challenge the collective thought pattern become a threat to the group and therefore are ostracized. Go and read your prophets. Go and study church history. Go and study the reformers. Every time there was reformation, every time there was change, every time there was something prophetic. It's not prophetic because I can tell you your address. It's not prophetic because I can tell you what you ate for dinner last week. It's prophetic when... I can come in and challenge the collective thought pattern with the purpose of breaking you out of a group, albeit a group, but a self-imposed limitation to set you free for a broader place to live so that you can have a different experience from God. That's actually what prophetic ministry is all about. And that's why prophets get ostracized because they don't buy into the collect. They come in and actually challenge the collective thought pattern. And God puts them there because God wants out of his box. Because he knows better than you know that you're relating to a pattern that you created. Because really you end up relating to God as a created thing rather than an uncreated thing. (laughs) The divine. 
Meister Eckhart was 13th century Christian mystic. Love this. This is the basis of everything I'm saying. So we say that when everything describing God is removed, everything is removed, abstracted, and peeled off so that nothing at all remains but a simple is, then that is the proper characteristic of God's name. And remember to ancient people, names and nature were the same. So one of our favorite, nothing on earth, everybody say this with me, nothing on earth can compare with thee. But our favorite comparison is to call God Father. (laughs) So we're going to look at some things. Well, let me give you a Thomas Merton quote. Our ideas about God tell us more about ourselves than they do about Him. So I'm going to give you just a couple of things about God, and then we're going to look at what it's like to strip that away. And then you can see if you want to go back to your original seat. It's a metaphor. God is a hymn. Certainly God is a hymn, because read your Bible, right? The truth of the matter is, That the divine does not have gender. (laughs) Because he wasn't born and... (laughs) Never mind. (laughs) We didn't have to check what gender he was. Okay, somebody got it. You'll get it about 3 o'clock in the morning. (laughs) God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in Spirit. spirit and in truth. So the divine actually does not have gender. And this one really bothers modern evangelicals, but it's true. But actually, the divine embodies fully both masculine and feminine principles. That's why in the beginning he created man or humanity in his image, male and female, he created them. If you read it in Hebrew, when it says the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep, the word for spirit there is in the Hebrew feminine form. And it's actually a picture of incubation or nurturing or like a mother eagle over her nests. So one of the first images, so right away in the beginning, God, masculine, created the heaven and the earth, and the spirit feminine of God hovered over the face of the deep. So in your first verse, you have have God fully embodying both masculine and feminine principles. But if I were to call Holy Spirit, for example, a she, people would get nervous. But the reality is, every time the word spirit's used in Hebrew, it's used in the feminine. And to a truly Jewish person, the Shekinah, or actually probably better said the Shekinah, everybody wants the Shekinah, right? The Shekinah glory. Come on, how many good Pentecostals do I have in here? Right? Okay, we want the Shekinah. In, in, in Hebraic form, Shekinah is always in the feminine. And one of the earliest conceptions of the Trinity was Father, Son, and Spirit, but the, the Spirit was feminine. So you had father, mother, son. Then the Greeks were all misogynistic, and so they got a hold of it. And the early church fathers were all misogynistic. And you know what misogyny is, right? It's the hatred of the feminine and the hatred of the women. So they removed the feminine aspects from God. But there's something inside of humanity that knows there is a divine side to God. So what happened was they ended up venerating Mary. So that in Christian circles, Mary represents the divine feminine. In Jewish circles, 
The Shekinah represents the divine feminine. In evangelical circles, we have no pattern for the divine feminine. And if you start talking about a pattern for the divine feminine, you get in a lot of trouble. (laughs) Nevertheless, you're missing, in that sense, half the nature of God in your experience because you refuse to let God out of his masculine box. So God is not a man and God is not a white man. <laughs> There's a little YouTube video we'll show in a second. How many of you have seen that little song? You'll, you'll walk out of here singing it. It's good. Um, so are you breathing? The, the word El Shaddai for Almighty in Hebrew is El Shaddai means the breasted one. There's several other references I could use, but I have to move on. Second image about God that's kind of messed up. God is sort of like a private investigator. Not only is God a man, but God's presence, you don't always feel it. You don't always know it. You go through dry seasons. He's not always there when you need help. He's not always going to answer your prayer. But one thing is for darn sure, he's always watching. He is always watching and he is investigating your secrets because after all, on Judgment Day, every secret thing is going to be made manifest. So God is like this private investigator that's peering through your windows, snapping pictures, looking, trying to catch you, doing something naughty so that he can present evidence against you on Judgment Day. Right? In my notes I say, he peers around, never making his presence known, but you always know he is there waiting to catch you doing something naughty. And one day he will present his evidence in the cosmic court. Right? So how do we contrast that? The divine has given you... Now this is self-evident, guys. This is absolutely self-evident, but we miss it. Just in creation, it's self-evident. Let go of your theological. Let's strip away another pattern, another idea. The divine has actually given you free will, watch this, to explore and develop yourself as you choose to do so. So I'm totally convinced. I've totally let go of the idea that God has a divine destiny for me. That's pre-recorded and pre-programmed. God has created me with all kinds of stuff and then wants me, the divine, has created me with all kinds of stuff and the divine wants me to explore and get to know that stuff and then I get to choose what I develop based on the desires of my heart and there is no comparison against what I was, quote-unquote, supposed to do or supposed to become. Because when I start thinking I'm supposed to be something, I'm supposed to become something, I'm supposed to do something, guess what I just did? I locked myself into a pattern. I'm sitting in the same seat every Sunday. And then if somebody else takes my seat, somebody else has a bigger church than me, somebody else goes to more nations to preach than I do, then they're in my seat and I'm upset and I can't be happy. That has to be one of the most freeing things I ever discovered about the divine. That's my favorite pick. Thank you for posing for that, Justin. (laughs) God, God rewards our suffering and gives us brownie points 
for our sacrifices. How many of us believe that one? Let's use scripture. Shall we use scripture? 1 Corinthians 13.3 Though I bestow all my goods on the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, and have not love, it profits me nothing. Now, think about that for a minute outside of your moralistic pattern of God and love. First thing up there is that the number one thing the divine is interested in is you and I profiting. That flies totally in the face of sacrifice. He wants us, she wants us to profit. Otherwise, that verse wouldn't even be in there. And guess what? Love is connected to the heart and it's connected to enjoyment. See, we have this Greek Western idea, if you love somebody, love is a choice, brother. Love is just a choice. And sometimes you've got to dig in and just, mm, I love you. I love you by faith. I love you because the Word of God told me to love you. We're the only group on the planet that thinks that's stupid. A love song is a love song because it moves you. You can feel it, right? Right? Hello? You didn't tell your, the love of your life, I love you because you were grinning and bearing it. At least not the first time. So God is into you feeling good. God is into you enjoying it. Just, just think about love being the highest level of ecstasy and enjoyment that you can have. And think about it that way. Though you give... Though you bestow all my good, though I bestow all my goods on the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but if I don't have the ecstasy of love, I don't have any profit. And that's what the divine wants for you and me. Because he's not, she's not, Inspector Clouseau. So the divine is actually into, very into, number one priority, the divine for you is into your enjoyment and your profit. How about this one? God is just so demanding. God is just so demanding. Now, if you grew up in certain denominations that have the initials AG, <laughs> or COG, or sometimes just a B, then you learned God was demanding. And depending on your version of those initials, some of you need some serious therapy. And a cult deprogrammer and all kinds of stuff to help you just enjoy life. Seriously. Seriously. Even the Jews, they're committed in Scripture to party at least once a year. Like, get wine, buy everything your heart desires, and go party before the Lord. And if you don't do that, you're cursed because you refuse to have joy. That's actually in your Bible, but they, our denominations forgot to read that. Because that's in the Old Testament, we don't read that stuff. It was amazing to me to realize that I could be a legalistic Jew and be way more free than most Christians. All right, moving right along. So God is just so demanding. 
Actually, that entirely, entirely, entirely misses the message of Jesus and the narrative of the Gospels and the meaning of the cross. The cross is not God getting his rocks off, punishing Jesus so he doesn't have to punish you. The cross is the revelation that the divine has given up judgment and will not use his power to enforce his way on you or her way on you. Why? Because you're totally free to choose. You're not coerced in any way. That's the message of the cross, which means... Watch this. Okay, yeah, yeah, I forgot about this scripture. That's funny when my notes sneak up on me. <laughs> First John four sixteen through 18. Now, hear this. If you've heard this before, you're immediately going to sit in your same seat. And I want to help you sit in a different seat with it today, all right? But let's acknowledge when you first hear it, you're sitting in your old seat, all right? And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and the one who lives in love lives in God, and God in Him. Herein is our love made complete, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as He is, so are we in this world. Look at why... We have confidence on the day of judgment because as he is, so are we in this world. Got it? Now, if you hear that moralistically, you think you've got to love, you, you, you get your WWJD bracelet out. But if you think about it, the, the word is ontologically, if you think about it from a sense of being, of just being, it changes. Because as he is, remember what Meister Eckhart said, when we strip away everything we think we know about God and we're left with a simple is, that's the closest we get to the actual name of God. So as he is, so are we. Not we will become, not we will try to be, not we will do as he does so we do in this world. That's usually how we read it. Because as he does, or as he did in this world, so that's WWJD. As he did in this world, so I do. So therefore, I'm crossing all the I's, dotting all the, dotting all the T's and crossing, crossing the T's and dotting the I's. I'm doing all the do's and I'm not doing all the don'ts. So I'm like he was, so now I have confidence because I didn't do anything that I'm going to be judged for. That's not what that verse is saying. It's not as he did in the world, so you're doing. It's as he is, so are we. We are... are do, you, do you kind of see it? There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear is about punishment. And he that is feared, he that fears is not complete in love. Read it again. Read it from a new seat. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. Not the love that we have for Him. God is love. And the one who lives in love lives in God and God in Him. Herein is our love made complete that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as He is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear is about punishment. He that fears is not made complete in love. 
The divine is total love and total being. In our only being, just if, we, if I, I shouldn't put just in there because just can sound like justice. In, just by being, only by being, we too are expressions of the divine. That's what that means. Therefore, there is no judgment, no punishment, and no reason to fear. Because if as he is, so are you in the world, then God would be judging and punishing himself if he judged and punished you. So as we live in love, as we attune ourselves more and more to love and to simply being, we realize there's no judgment, there's no punishment, therefore there's no fear, and that fear begins to be cast out, and we come to a higher place of completion and perfection in love. Does that make sense? Come back second service. We'll do it a little differently. Because I'll, I'll share if I have time second service. I'm out of time now. But I'll share how those shifts radically changed my life and my experience so that I'm more fruitful now than I've ever been without trying to be. And I'm experiencing more power than I've ever experienced without trying to work for it or earn it or get it. So I'm sold. All right. Nick, you want to come close us? Bless you guys. Yeah, I know. See you. Now, if all y'all come second service, I'm going to do the same thing. So you have to sit in a different seat.